that it takes time. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be there tomorrow, mm. right? And just be like, listen, like when you're 17, and, and this is where I think. Hello and welcome to the Off Field Rugby Pod. My name is Brian Moylet. I'm a former Irish underage international and this podcast is for young rugby players. I chat with players and coaches at the top of the game about their journey and get their insights so that you can learn from them. Please follow me on Instagram at offfieldrugby, share the pod with friends and make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Today I'm chatting with Maria Gallo who played 55 times for the Canada 15s team going to the World Cups in 02 and 06 and also played sevens where she captained her country at the World Cup in Dubai in 09. Maria is now the director of the Masters of High Performance Coaching and Technical Leadership Program in the University of British Columbia and is also assistant coach with the Canada Senior Women's 15s team. We chat about all of this and you'll learn a great tool for how to never get overawed or overwhelmed by the opposition, no matter who you're playing against. And we also chat about how you can become a full-time rugby player in Canada when you leave high school and this is also applicable in the States and some other tier one nations. We also chat about coach education and how you can be a better coach. We chat about Maria's journey from growing up in Argentina to Canada, playing different sports and getting started in rugby and lots more. Maria used to coach the UBC women's team before stepping away to go to Canada, which she chats about. And I'm now the backs and attack coach for UBC. So just a bit of background because we mentioned that in it. And also we recorded this chat in Maria's office in UBC, which was an icebreak from Zoom. So here is episode number 45 with Maria Gallo. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you and so that you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So born in Argentina, was it there where you started playing rugby or found rugby or here in Canada? Not at all, yeah. So I moved to Canada, I was nine and a half to Montreal. I didn't find rugby until my last year of high school. I went to a small Catholic high school in Guelph, Ontario, St. James High School. Um, and I played every sport up until rugby. And uh, I was at a soccer practice one day at a big kind of like uh, sports uh, place. And I looked across the field and there was these girls running with a ball in hand and tackling each other. And I looked at my friend Jen. I'm like, what is that? Like, what? And she's like, oh, that's rugby. I said, oh, cool. And then every time I went to that same pitch, I'd keep looking over. And finally, I went over and, and chatted with the coach and said, how do you sign up for this? Like, this sounds pretty cool. And, uh, and he gave me all the info. And he ended up being, Jim Atkinson ended up being my university coach. Um, and then after that summer, I got caught playing provincial rugby, uh, U19 Ontario, and then tried out for the Griffins because I was starting my undergrad at Guelph that year. And uh, that's how I basically started. It was 
getting a lot of not red cards in soccer, but a lot of yellow cards in soccer and probably in basketball, a lot of technical fouls as well. And I was just that aggressive kid. I grew up with two older brothers um, and, and that's basically it. So in Argentina, it wasn't even a sniff of it. I didn't do a lot of sports in Argentina. I did like gymnastics and played soccer with my brothers outside, but nothing organized. Like back in the early 80s, organized sport wasn't a thing, right? Like you just played phys ed in, in school mm. and that was it. So yeah, that's how I found rugby. Nice. And so what, you're playing soccer, basketball, high school, like in the high school and then, yeah, so. Yeah, I played all sorts of things. So basketball, I remember in the, in the winter, volleyball in the fall, I played badminton. Uh, I did track and field. So I played every sport I mm. could, mostly to just get out of class early was yeah. like really what I wanted to I do. Know that feeling. Yeah, and the jocks at our school got that preview, which was pretty awesome. And I never played club. Like I, my only first organized sport was U19 provincial rugby. Uh, it was my parents were immigrants. So it, we didn't really have a lot of money to play, to pay and go play sport. It was like if the school offers it, you can go. That just means you're home two hours later, which is great for my parents. Didn't have to like kind of watch us. They were, uh, they're both professionals and worked long hours. Um, I take the bus to practice, take the bus home. Um, didn't really have that parent that drove me to every single practice. Um, and yeah, I played every sport I possibly could. And then that first U19 experience, which I actually got cut from that team because you can imagine I, I wasn't a skillful rugby mm -hmm. player. I was definitely like fit and motivated, but I didn't even know the rules of the game. Like I knew I had to pass backwards. And I actually one time in my first club game ran through the end zone and <laughs> touched the ball <laughs> outside out of bounds. Cause I didn't even know, like nobody told me that I had to do it within this respected area. Yeah. And I can just hear people like yelling, touch the ball down, touch it. And I touched it down and I was out of bounds. And my, like my coach is just grabbing his head like, uh, what is going on here? I actually scored three tries in my first game. I, I didn't pass. I just grabbed the yeah, ball go. and then took took off like lightning. Um, and so the whole organized provincial tryouts was like super daunting. I didn't know what I was doing. And I got cut but I, with good reason. The coach said like, you're too green. Like you need to get a couple more years mm -hmm. of rugby under your belt. But luckily for, for me and unluckily for one of the girls, the, the fullback broke her nose just before going to the national championships. And so they pulled me up. And I ended up playing wing for that in that particular tournament. And since then, I just got to learn the rules. At the time, I would like rugby was not on TV, um, so even acquiring some film was difficult. Yeah. I just kind of learned the rules from going to practice lots and asking questions. Um, and to be honest, I probably didn't know all the rules of the game until I was like three or four years into the sport. Um, it's one of those games that's like super complex, right? Yeah, 100%. You're yeah. always learning rules nearly. Like I'm always learning <laughs> myself and then telling the players I coach as well, like these intricate ones around like balls going out of play. Exactly. I knew lines. the big ones as a winger that applied. Like if I kick the ball from inside of this line, which is the 22, yeah. okay, we get the ball there. But if I kick it outside, it's there. Um, so yeah, I, I can now, I try to have that empathy with incoming players that like, Hey, it's a highly like tactical, technical sport. And there's a lot of rules and yeah. it takes time to learn them. Yeah. So, but it can be simple as well. And it can be simple, but well, it, yeah, you can, well, learn. that was it. Like, I honestly, I think that's why I was good. My first few years, it's like run with the ball and don't get tackled. Like that's what the coach said to me. And if you see this out of bounds line, cut inwards, like yeah. do not run out of bounds with ball in hand. And as soon as I would see that white sideline, I would hard power step in and then get tackled. So yeah, yeah. you're right. It, it is a pretty simple sport when you boil it down. Yeah. And so yeah. then did you pretty quickly 
become interested in rugby? Like you say, U19, then you played in college? Yeah, so um, I was playing volleyball. My th This is grade 13, so I'm definitely dating myself. Back in Ontario, high school went up to grade 13, okay. and it was called OAC. It, it, it basically prepared you for, for um, university. So if you didn't want to go to college, you basically graduated high school in grade 12. But if you wanted to go to higher education, you stuck around an extra year. So that grade 13, I was playing volleyball. And the, the coach from Guelph um, came to look at me at a couple of volleyball tournaments. The volleyball she, coach. Volleyball coach, because yeah. she thought I could be a good uh, libero, right? Somebody that's in the back just kind of playing a lot of defense. Defense was my jam. Um, obviously, at 5'6", I wasn't towering yeah. over anybody, right? <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't the setter. So um, I could set in a pinch, but not really. And she came and talked to me a lot, a lot. And she's like, hey, I heard you're applying to Guelph and you got in. Would you be interested in volleyball? And my brother, my older brother, Freddie, was playing volleyball at the time for Guelph. And so Freddie was like, listen, Maria, it's a long season if you're going to be riding pint, right? Because I wasn't going to be a star. And I was like, well, I don't want to like commit to a sport where I'm going to be riding the bench. Like, I don't want to yeah. be a sub. I want to be uh, a starter. And then that summer, prior to, to the, the season starting at Guelph, I started playing rugby, and I was immediately just had a knack for it, right? And then I said, all right, forget volleyball. I kind of dropped volleyball altogether, and then just, start, like I said, played club that summer. I played U19, and then went to the, the Griffin Trials um, and made the starting team for that. And since, since then, I've never looked back. I dropped all other sports and just focused on weightlifting, track, and rugby. Nice. And yeah. so then you started playing in Guelph and you're doing your undergrad, like all in on rugby. Yeah. Yeah. So I was taking five courses back in the day. Most students finished their undergrad in four years. So that was the case. Yeah. Uh, there was no seven seasons. So the rugby season was short, basically September and October and a little bit of November. I was playing at the time where it wasn't a youth sport. So um, CIAU, I think it was called back in the day, wasn't a thing. So our, our competition calendar was Ontario teams only. It was only my last year at Guelph where there was a national championship and the U of A Pandas came to us. We were hosting nationals um, and we thought we were the best and we were the best in Ontario at the time. And the Pandas just cleaned house with us, like big, strong women. Uh, I remember it was snowing that day, so it was Ooh. definitely not a backs game. And, and that was our strength. Guelph had like dynamic, creative backs and their forwards just completely demolished ours. And, and it wasn't much of a game. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe Ontario is not the only province that's actually yeah. playing some good rugby. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but eventually I ended up going to the U of A to do my grad studies. Um, so yeah, I played four years of, of university rugby and it was only a youth sport the last two years. So my five year, I had lots of eligibility years, which is why I kept playing it in Alberta um, once I decided to go there for grad school. Yeah. And so yeah. when did the Canada stuff start then? The Canada start um, my third year of university, so I was just turned t 21, and I went to a trial. My my sister-in-law now, but a good friend of mine at the time, Colette McCauley, she was in grad school and coaching the Griffins. She had had her her seasons, um, and she said, "Gallo, you should really come to this trial." And I said, "Yeah, no worries," and I did. Uh, and the, the coach liked what he saw, and this was Rick Suggett at the time. Um, and then I went to a couple more trials and within, I don't know, I'm going to say six months, I was on the national team again, very raw, probably still mm -hmm. didn't know all the rules of the game, to be honest. Uh, and back in the day, you know, Canada would only play maybe two international matches, mostly against the U S unless it was a world cup year. Cause I remember in 1998, I had a couple of friends that were on the Griffins team that went to Europe to play in the, um, in the world cup. 
and then I made the 2002 World Cup in Spain. So I probably made that team when I was about 21. And so yeah. how was that? Like you're, re as you say, like really green. You you don't really know the game. You're you're just going for it. And how is that like stepping up yeah. into a Canada team where obviously there's way more experienced players? Yeah, it was definitely. It, I was a funny athlete in the sense that I never got nervous when I played against opposition. I just kind of focused on what I thought I could do for that one particular game. Um, even when I was like playing against New Zealand, I'd be like, okay, it's a game against New Zealand, whatever. I'm just going to go try out and see what I can do. Mm. Um, but that World Cup experience was massive, like uh, playing international games in this big but empty stadium in Barcelona with like 35 degree of weather. It was hot. Um, not a lot of fans, but just like that excitement of just representing your country. For me, that, that was huge. I, I remember my first international match and we were in Saranac Lake, which is just in like northern New York state. Um, and we had seven UCAPs in that game. So it was a huge turnover year. And because everybody was relatively young, I felt like the pressure was off. There was definitely some older athletes on that team that had high expectations. But for me, it was like Canada was used to losing at the time, right? We, we, didn't, we didn't have a huge, um, strong program. And so those low expectations for me just gave me that ability to just go out there and try my best and, and see what I can do. So I never, luckily, I think maybe it's a skill. I don't know, yeah. luck or skill. I never got too anxious about a game. I didn't think too far ahead. I just kind of focused on what I can do in the moment um, and had success with that all throughout. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Cause it's yeah. such a, a common thing. I know myself and even we were chatting before, like I was with Canada West men's on Saturday and we we're yep. playing against an American team of crossover athletes, big guys and all the chat for and was all oh, they're big all this, that, the other, like mm -hmm. talking about the opposition, building the opposition up in your head. I used to always do it. And yeah. it's just such a common thing that players do, but it's uh, it's unreal that you never really did that. And it is a skill because when you can focus on yourself, it's so much easier. A hundred percent. And like back in the day, again, I sound old. We didn't, we didn't have film and we didn't mm. analyze the opposition. So yeah. I didn't know that my 13 can cut left only and had a yeah. mean straight on like none of that. You literally just showed up and I've got 80 minutes to beat this person up. And like, I, I played angry and I played like mean, clean, but mean. Um, and so it was super competitive and I often felt like I can outcompete most people, uh, when it really came down to it. So that self-belief, I guess you would call it nowadays, yeah. and just maybe a bit of being naive kind of worked in my advantage, but I didn't focus too much. Like, oh my God, that girl's massive and fast. I'm like, no way I'm faster. Like in my head, I was like, I'm faster. I'm going to beat you. And I'm going to try to do that every time that I can. So very competitive. And as a winger, you can hear the crowd, right? Like chirping you and stuff. And that just fed me. I loved it. When somebody was trash talking me on the sidelines, I would rev up to the point where I would score a try and look at that person <laughs> like, keep Let's doing go. it. Like, thanks. That's helping yeah. me out. Right. Um, the fans that would yell in my ear, I would just kind of use that as fuel and it totally motivated me. Yeah. And I, honestly, I probably have that because of growing up with two older brothers. It's actually when I coached here at UBC, it was one of my questions to my recruits. I asked, what are like, where are, do you have any siblings and where are you? Right. Cause I often find female athletes that have older brothers, they're just competitive and aggressive and they probably had to survive yeah. like a harsh environment. And definitely that was my, my uh, experience with two older brothers. We were all three of us within four years. So we were really quite close in age. 
and we had a pretty wild childhood in Argentina. Like my parents were both professionals, worked long hours. You know, babysitters weren't really a thing. It was more like, hey, Freddie, make sure Maria doesn't kill herself. And they'd leave us for three or four hours and we'd just go off and do whatever we wanted. So that ability, like freedom to make decisions, but also try to keep up with my brothers was always something that I would like strive to do. Like I didn't have my own friends until I was like 10 years old. I just played with the boys. Like I, my brothers put me in net and I was the goalie. And so I was fearless. Like I didn't care some kids kicking a ball 100 miles an hour in my face. I was going to stop it because if I couldn't do that, my brothers wouldn't want to play with me. Yeah. And then I, what's, what are the options? Just sitting on the sidelines is not something I was willing to do. So I would like put my body at risk. Like I lots of stitches, been to the hospital a lot of times as a young uh, kid, just try to keep up with the brothers. And so one of my recruiting questions is, do you have any older brothers? And what were your experiences with them? Because if you survived that, I think you have something inside you that gives you a bit of fight. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so true as well. And I, yeah. yeah, two of your brothers, I look at my youngest as well. And yeah, I <laughs> laugh. He's, yeah. He right. Because we fight. Like, just boys fight. All the we time. Just, and know, somebody's going to be bigger and stronger than you. And so you got to outsmart them, one. Yeah. Um, or, or try to outpower them or, you know, outtire them. Something. There's got to be something that you can do so you don't get beat up all the time. Yeah, you know? it's surviving a lot of the time. 100%. Yeah. Like, my brothers would pin me on the ground. Yeah. And like, tell me they were gonna spit my eye if I couldn't get myself off the ground. Like, it was, you know, yeah, like yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. vicious, oh, yeah. brotherly oh, stuff, yeah, right? Of course. Yeah. Um, and it was, we always fought more Nico than Freddie. My oldest brother is a bit nicer, and the middle one is a bit more wild. Uh, but it was always us against each other. But then when we were out in the streets, it was always us against everybody else. Yeah. Like, nobody would touch me. Like, don't touch Maria. Like, they yeah. were very protective even throughout high school and university. Like I didn't have a boyfriend <laughs> until I left university because everybody would be like, that's Nico's younger sister. Don't even go there. Don't bother. <laughs> yeah, don't bother. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's something that I think, you know, if you grow up with those like internal fights, I think, I don't know. It's yeah. very anecdotal. There's no science behind it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think but some of the better athletes that I've come across that are just fierce, like, you, I mean, you coach, you get it. Yeah. You cannot coach that motivation, that fight. 100%. And people are skilled and fit, but there's something inside where you're ultra competitive. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of strong female rugby players out there that don't have an older brother, but I think it brings that out for sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And you mentioned there about going to University of Alberta. So mm -hmm. when you were like starting out with Canada, you were yep. doing your undergrad, you were getting involved in the game. Mm -hmm. So you, did you kind of decide then like that? you love the game that that was something that you're going to pursue but you're obviously very academic as well so yeah so for me so I finished my undergrad in four years um I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself I I knew that I didn't want to I thought maybe medicine both my parents were veterinarians so I thought maybe medicine uh, my younger my older brother Nico was in vet school and I was like now nah, I don't want to go the vet route um, and so I graduated and again I was just working at crop science which is a pretty like um it, it was a fun summer job. I spent the, the days in the fields, like like basically counting canola leaves for a researcher. <laughs> uh, super boring, but I got a nice tan and then I can go run sprints after, so that was awesome. But um, I didn't know what to do. And my friend Jenny that I grew up in Montreal, so when I left Argentina, we lived in Montreal for a while. She's like, let's go traveling. Let's go to Australia. I said, awesome, let's do it. Because I wanted to take a gap year and just go backpacking. And she came down with like a severe case of tonsillitis. So our whole trip got canceled. Oh. And I was like, what do I do with myself now? Like, I, 
I didn't apply to, to any professional programs or grad school. I didn't have any big plans. And at the time, my mom was living and working in Santa Monica, California. So I went and hung out with her for six months. And I was a professional dog walker. So I would walk the dogs on the beach of California. Ooh, it was super awesome. That's cool. And just worked out and trained. And then after six months, I'm like, I'm bored. I can't do this forever. Uh, so I said, I'm going to apply to grad schools. So I was writing my GREs, which is like that uh, exam that you need for grad school. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to the States in America. Like my dad was living in Georgia at the time, my mom in California. But then my rugby would have suffered if I stayed in, in America. So I, I said, hey, I'm going to just go to grad school. And I literally was like, what, what university has a strong rugby program? And I thought, oh, the Pandas. <laughs> like they came and the killed us. us yeah. yeah, the ones that beat us two years ago. And um, sure enough, I applied to the phys ed and rec department. Um, and there was this uh, great researcher. I called him Teddy, but uh, Ted Putman. And he was doing some really good research in, in something super nerdy, which I loved. Um, and I went and had a chat with him. And he, I, I did an honors degree in undergrad, uh, which basically allowed me to get some skills in the lab uh, that I would have needed to do a good master's with him. And he's like, yeah, come on down to the U of A to do a master's of science. And that two-year degree eventually became um, a PhD. So my thoughts when I first got to Alberta, I was like, ooh, Alberta's cold and like gray. It's not, I mean, Ontario wasn't great, but it was a, it, I was far from family. So I just thought I'm only gonna be here two years, play some good rugby. I was also I was still on the national team at the time. So the reason for going to the U of A was, was rugby, right? I can keep playing, get another degree, just extend my livelihood at the university level because university offers you that great infrastructure. Mm. So good daily training environment. You can hit the gym for free. If you get hurt, you get physio, medical, right? So it is just a great place to be. Um, and so, yeah, that two year became six years. Um, and I was playing, I played for the Pandas, um, which was funny because they remembered me when I played for Guelph and I thought they weren't going to be very welcoming. Uh, but I always thought I'm just going to score a couple of tries for them and then they're going to like they me. <laughs> and that was the case, right? Um, you know, back in the day we used to do skit nights and they would make fun of the Griffins all the time and just mo mostly to just get at me, but I laughed along, like it was funny. Right. Mm. And they were like, okay, this girl's kind of cool. Like she's not, you know, getting too upset about us making fun of the Griffins. Um, and yeah, just played more varsity mm. rugby there. They had a good, strong program. My lab was literally on the second floor of the athletic building. So I can go hit the gym at any time. Um, and winters are long in Alberta, so I did a lot of track, like the Butter Dome is that indoor facility. So I, I spent a lot of time running track and lifting weights, um, and I beefed up big time while I was there. Um, and I, that's also when I started bobsledding for Canada um, later on in my career. But um, yeah, I loved my years in Edmonton. Like It was a great university town. The team was um, fun. We were winning a lot of championships. Grad school was going well. So I just kept riding that wave as long as I could. Um, eventually all good things come to an end and I had to move on, but it was great. It was a really great training environment for me. Yeah, it's something that I think young players, well maybe, I'm not sure they understand here how good it is. Like I chat to the girls and the boys as well, some of them last weekend and yep. coming from back home, getting to be involved in an academy, professional teams, there's like four academies in the country mm -hmm. and England is, you know, it's similar in that it's very difficult but here the snc the facilities you've got the, everything at your fingertips yeah. literally no excuse yeah like i understand school is is a lot of work and you have to put in those hours in the books but honestly 
as somebody in their earlier 20s, I didn't have to worry about anybody but myself. Mm. I just had to make sure I passed my courses and did well. So attend classes, that was huge. Put your nose in the books, uh, but also the gym availability. Uh, we, don't, we didn't have nutrition support at the time, but now I know they do. So mm. nutrition support, sports psychology, physio, medical, anything that you really need to make you the best rugby player you can. And plus you're literally training every day or at least like yeah. either doing SNC or rugby practice. And so for me, those, those six, cause I spent, um, I spent God seven years within the university system, which is two more than you're allowed kind of, but we, our, our sport was not, um, you sport, a youth sport until my, my third year of university. So I spent seven years in the system and I felt old when I was still playing with against some 18 year olds at like 23, I was like, okay, yeah. I'm ready to move on. But it was great because I, I tore my shoulder in my second to last year and I, I rehabbed it within the university system. So lots of medical attention. Um, and it also just, it gave me that daily training environment that I needed to play at the national level because national teams as you know you're not centralized you only get together a couple of time a year um and the snc coach from the national team would be like here's your program testing is on this day off you go right so yeah. no support um and i liked being in the gym and i know a lot of athletes that's a hard ask and so i, I didn't need that that daily um reminder but it was great the university system i think is important it's like it's definitely part of the athlete development plan here in canada just from an infrastructure perspective. Plus we have some of the best coaches in Canada coaching at the university level. So you're getting a, like a, a really great day-to-day -day training environment. Yeah, you, so you're a full-time athlete. You're a full-time you athlete. You just don't get paid heavily. A hundred percent. Yeah, and now scholarships are a thing. So yeah. you can you know get your tuition fees paid for, which is yeah. huge. Um, if you're good at school and you can manage a part-time job, um, that's also an option. Um, yeah, there's honestly no excuses for somebody that's in that 18 to 23 range to just have a really hard go at rugby because you've got the environment literally at your fingertips. Yeah. And yeah. so then when you finished in Alberta, you came out here, was yep. it TBC? Yeah, I came here in 2008. So I was done my PhD. Um, again, rugby was a decision like, where do I go next? So I, I knew I had at least another World Cup in me, maybe two. And I came to UBC to do a postdoctoral fellowship in blood doping just here in the School of Kinesiology. So um, I worked in a lab. Once again, the labs, the skills that I picked up in my PhD that were very kind of wet lab because um, my, my thesis uh, at the grad level was um, the effects of creatine supplementation okay. and how it uh, attenuates the the, the fastest slow transition that happens within your muscle fibers. So it was basically a exercise biochemistry degree, but I, I can spin it and make it applied or I can go real nerdy, right? So I, I like wearing those two hats mm. where um, I could speak different languages. I can, I can speak scientist, right? Or I can definitely speak more applied. And that's something that I even do now today as a coach educator, I, I can talk athlete language because I've been there, but I can also speak coach language, right? And I think having those abilities to communicate with different audiences is, is really important. Um, so yeah, I came here to do a, um, a postdoc in that. Um, I was carded at the time. I was playing 15s and 7s, so that was a heavy travel schedule. And the reason I came here, because I remember at the time, my supervisor was like, listen, if you've got to go train or you got to go travel with your Canadian squad, 
I'm fine with that. But when you're here, you work hard. And mm. I was like, done, I can do that, right? And I said to him, listen, like this is my competition schedule. It was pretty busy. It was uh, 2008, so it was the year before the uh, 2009 World Cup for Sevens, Sevens yeah. which was in Dubai. And so we were traveling a lot. Um, and he's like, yep, just work hard when you're here and when you're away, you're away. And so him saying that, well, I was like, I'm in. So I moved to UBC, like the Vancouver area. And then after a year, my postdoc, a position came up in the School of Kinesiology as, a, as an instructor. And I applied for that and I got it. So my last year and a half before retiring in 2010, I was actually a full-time academic, like working. And that was difficult. Like I definitely missed my mm -hmm. university days where I was a full-time athlete slash um, student because work is, is different. Like you've got your eight hour day, but then you've got your work after your work. Um, and so keeping up with the training hours became harder and I started to lose that, that passion for it. And then I just knew it was time to, to retire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and yeah. you mentioned there carded. So like, I know that others won't, but I know that that's yeah. that you're kind of, um, is it paid a little bit that you're kind of like maybe semi pro or something, but before that, was there any like when you're playing with the senior women's teams because I know underage more so girls but boys also at year yeah. 18 19 you have to pay to play did you ever have to pay to play or <laughs> for most of my career yeah so yeah. uh so provincial rugby like you paid your club fees and mm. that was it uh so it was the pay to play model for all of my Canadian like uh, experience um so we would get carding money um but it was literally in one pocket out the other because yeah. I, you would get a monthly stipend, but then a tour to France cost you $35,000, right? And, and if you're a student, like you're paying tuition and I wasn't working, so I was a professional student. I was on scholarship, luckily. Um, so I was able to like make a bit of money and not have to get a job on top of my schooling and my rugby. But yeah, it was pay to play throughout my whole career and it was really heavy when I was playing sevens and fifteens. There was one year where I remember paying $13,000 to play for Canada, right? Wow. Um, to the point where I called my dad one time and said, hey, I need some money. Like I can't keep doing this. And that was the decision at the end because it started, the tide started to turn in 2010. You could see that, okay, now it's, it's um, tours are free. Um, you don't have to pay for that. Um, and so you could tell that the sport was changing, but it was at the tail end of my career. And I, I didn't want to have like, I didn't have the, the stamina to go another World Cup to, to experience that change. But it was great to see that athletes at the time, like now, they don't even know that it was a thing. Some athletes, yeah. you know, that's why I try to bring alumni to rugby camps once in a while at the <laughs> national level and say, hey, tell us a bit about your day to day. And what was it like playing rugby in uh, you know 2005 2008 and it's great for the current athlete to hear that these women had full-time jobs trained full-time and then paid to play for their country yeah 100 so, percent. Yeah. yeah so they can get some perspective and be a bit more grateful because i know myself personally different things you kind of you get used to certain things 100 percent. yeah and and you don't know what you don't know right no. so sometimes i can't blame a young 20 year old that's like Hey, like my kit doesn't fit and da 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 da. Yeah. And I'm like, at least you have nice kit. Like we used to get the leftovers from the men's program. And there yeah. was one tour where we literally, that's what we got. We got the leftovers from the men's program. We could not train in these jerseys. They were like XLs. Um, and it was a bit of a laugh at the time, but completely disrespectful. Mm. Um, 
And so our athlete reps were, were very vocal. And eventually, I think that made a difference at the board level where, um, you know, we, we now have the Munty Fund. We have these board members that are like, okay, the women's game needs to accelerate to the level of the men's. Uh, because from a performance perspective, the, men, the women historically do better than the men. And so we need to support them so they can, they can train full time and, and do their thing, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't blame the young athlete that takes it for granted. But every, every time we have these events where alumni come to speak with current athletes, they're so grateful and they're like, I'm so glad that I now know like this is where you guys came from. And they're like, thank you for paving the way. And I'll, you know, super grateful and, and great to talk to. But it's good for them to hear that because you're right. They they have these expectations that, you know, uh, they want everything that they that everybody else has. And I'm like, just look around. Like, you know, you, we came from some pretty humble beginnings, mm. and we have we're still not where we need to be, but we've come leaps and bounds. And so just appreciate that and thank the people behind you, <laughs> you know, yeah. for making those uh, sacrifices and that, making that effort. Yeah, no, that's cool because I'm reading a book at the moment, Belonging by Owen Eastwood, and others okay. might have heard of it, but he speaks about that a lot. And he's a Maori, and they talk, I'm Whakapapa, I'll butcher that, but it, it, he, they talk, whenever he goes into different teams, it's all about he researches right. the history. So, like, he's with Harlequin's Men's, and he'll okay. look at, like, the 19, early 1900s and just yeah. talk about the people who've paved the way. Yeah. And so that's exactly what you're doing there. So yeah. then people yeah can connect to that and you kind of connect a bit of hardship like you're mm -hmm. saying again and yeah, yeah it's and it's kind of paying it forward right like i i'm very grateful for the um the senior athletes when i got onto teams because i know it was worse for them and then yeah. we got a little bit better and the people ahead like behind me are getting it a little bit better but yeah like i, I often tell the girls like you're standing on the shoulder of giants like these women paved the way just say thank you and go and win a world cup that's mm. all we ask of you right we don't um, just perform well, try your best, and just be grateful for the environment that you have because it is pretty top-notch compared to other nations or yeah. just what it was even 10 years ago. Like, we don't have to go that far back to see that we've made some really great gains. Yeah, brilliant. Mm -hmm. And so when did you get involved in coaching? Was that kind of when your playing days finished up here? You decided, yeah. I want to... Yeah, in 2010, so I retired from international rugby after that England World Cup, and I was a full-time instructor here. I played a couple more seasons of club because I was really enjoying playing for Burnaby. Uh, a lot of my friends were still playing, so Corinne, Kimi, Anna Schnell uh, were a bunch of Canada girls, and we were just riding that wave. You know, you're fit, you're, yeah. you're smart, you know, yeah. uh, club rugby was fun. And then a few years into it, it just, you know, that Tuesday, Thursday practice in the rain at 8 p.m. was no longer at, like at, um, enticing. And so I thought I'm going to help Leslie McKenzie coach. And she was the current coach here at UBC. And I just uh, she was a forward on the national team. So she took the pack and I took the backs. So I was a volunteer coach for two or three years with her. And then she eventually moved to New Zealand to become more of a professional coach and left the birds program and i just took it on so i was i was the head coach for about four or five years and that was a lot it was you know get my ubc kin work done and then clean up and and go train the girls um and it, it's not the program that you you're in now it wasn't as professional it was something that i did on, like on the side of my desk literally um but it was great to get those couple of four or five years as a head coach because it really challenged me i was always an assistant coach um, and when you're leading a program, the pressure is really on you, right? Um, I enjoyed that. It was great while it lasted, but I honestly thought this, this, this position needs to be carved out for full-time mm. leadership. 
and uh, it was very timely because I, my first year as a full-time head coach here was the year that the athletics was doing a review. So the intent of that review, it was to, to slash teams to maybe eight to 10 varsity uh, spots only. And so when I first got hired, Teresa Hansen at, at the time was like, Maria, you need, to, you need to write a report and basically provide a rationale of why you think the women's program should remain varsity. And that was, that was to hear that, I was like, so the future of this program literally depends on my documentation and my report. And she's like, yeah. So I spent like six months just because I was pretty new to UBC. Like I didn't have a history of the mm. Thunderbirds. I played my rugby at Guelph in Alberta. And so I spoke with alumni, uh, uh, previous coaches, current athletes. Um, I got word of, of Peter, um, who's a huge supporter of the men's and the mm. women's rugby now. And I said, Peter, like, we need to fund a full-time position here. Otherwise, this program's going to sink and we're going to go get relegated to club level. And so Peter Bull was amazing. Uh, he got a couple of other guys involved. And with a little bit of money and, I guess, a good pitch, we were able to sell to athletics that we were worthy of staying a varsity program. And it was also because our sevens team at the time was doing really well. So we kind of you know, said, hey, we can be a, a year-long program with 15s and sevens. Um, and really become competitive and be one of the best women's program in, in Canada. And so um, we did get the funding we needed to, to support the program for that time, but then it really came down to this program needs full-time leadership, and that's when uh, we were able to secure funding for that and then put a job at it and start interviewing for it. And as you know, Dean got that job, and so I was able to step away and, and be an assistant again, which was easier given my academic schedule. Yeah. Cool, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's mad how uh, how much stuff away from the field that head coaches or direct. It's kind of like director of rugby as well, the title they use in Europe. Mm -hmm. But um, how not little coaching, but how much of their job is yeah. It's oh, it's seventy percent administration. Yeah, like at the yeah. time, like you're you're dealing with everything. Um, I would have to tell athletics bookings and ferries and travel and then recruiting and then uh, making sure the girls are, are getting the grades that they need in order mm. to come back next year. Yeah. And so honestly, it's, you know, full, a coach nowadays in, in a varsity system, it's, I would say it's 70% administrative and 30% coaching, mm. right? No longer are the days of, Hey, I'm just going to write a practice plan and then go execute in half an hour. Like, you yeah. know, those days are far gone. Um, and honestly, I'm glad I stepped away when that started to happen because that's not my passion. Like, I don't want to be an administrator. I just, I just like making rugby players better, right? Mm -hmm. I like cleaning up and, and, and getting on the field and coaching. And then it became more of like, hey, you need to fundraise. You need to like connect with your alumni. You need to like recruit for next year and a lot of that. And it, it was literally a full-time job in itself. And it came to the point where it's something's going to give and it's not going to be my academic job because that's the one I spent 10 yeah, years yeah. in school to get. Um, and it was the coaching uh, one. And I'm, I'm glad we did that because now the Thunderbird program is like within five years, you know, we're now at a national championship vying for, for one in the country, right? Which yeah. is exciting yeah, and, and sure. so cool to see that we were like never going to make, <laughs> uh, never going to make like, U sport championships to hey we're there and it's for the taking and and so a lot of that is is due to the hard work of the current leadership right now so yeah no mm -hmm. it's brilliant mm -hmm. um and so when did then canada stuff start happening coaching wise so yeah um i would say let me see i'm gonna say about four years ago uh so once i was done with the ubc program i said to dean hey like 
you're doing awesome you've secured some great other assistant coaches i'm going to step away from ubc and just try my hat at national level um and national level coaching to some degree is less work because the girls don't gather as often it's yeah. not a day-to-day -day. it's hey i'm available for two weeks and we're going to go to this camp and then we're going to go and, and have an international match here and there and so it was less time consuming and i wanted to try the national level because i, f I felt that would be my next challenge and so I, I this is probably my fourth year with a national team um and again the 15s program is not centralized so it's a matter of just securing a couple of um vacation weeks where I can like step away from UBC work um, and go do some coaching at the national level. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. how do you find that? Um, I mean, COVID kind of came pretty early into it. So that was a huge buzzkill. But now we're in a good flow of things. I mean, we're going to New Zealand in, in the fall for the, the World Cup there. So there's some really exciting times. And I, I like the challenge. I, I'm, I haven't been an international athlete myself in like 12, 13 years. So I'm, I'm like far removed from like that at feeling like an athlete, mm. more like a coach now. Cause I mean, you probably experienced that. You're, that transition is oh, tough, I right? I want to jump in. I want to have a few exactly, kicks. I want to yeah. play as well. I do not want to <laughs> yeah. jump in nowadays. I'm going to get stepped and it's going to be embarrassing. Yeah. So I do not uh, jump in the line and, and get a, be a part of it all. But it's, um, I feel like I going back to that, that point that I made that I can, I'm like bilingual. I can talk coach i can yeah. talk athlete i've been there myself and and i'm very mindful of just my strengths and my strengths are with the back three um and i've been what like i've been watching rugby uh, for a long time now so just i have that tactical knowledge and mm -hmm. and i i like challenging the girls and that's that's something that i'm still passionate about and keep that going at least until the world cup in the fall and then i'll sit down and reassess right um wh what does a family need what do i want to do with my coaching career because for me it's been a volunteer position for most of my life and and i like the duality that i have between sport and academia um but people are like hey would you ever be a full-time head coach i'm like nah i think i think i'm good like that administrative load for me really yeah. just kills it um, but uh, happy to come in and support somebody that's passionate about that and just get to work with the athlete. That's really where I enjoyed. It's like being cleated up on the grass on a sunny day and then practicing some grubber kicks and talking strategy. That's really what mm. that it excites me. Nice one. And mm -hmm. so then it's interesting, Canada, the geography here, yeah. such a big country in Ireland back home, we don't have it, but it's like, you get together for camps and then there's different is there like east west camps and how does it all work in that sense building up to a world cup next yeah. fall yeah so post covid i'm gonna say so the girls went to to the us and in the uk in the fall um so with that behind us we, we and we had um, a change in in leadership uh recently so we just kind of started from scratch. Like the, we had a lot of great athletes playing in the UK and France. So we here in Canada don't have a professional rugby league. Uh, so a lot of our athletes that could get away uh, and do schooling remotely, um, they went to UK and played some great rugby in the UK or, or um, France. So we also have somebody in New Zealand. So some girls were getting a lot of great rugby and others were at home not getting any rugby and just kind of spending time in the gym if they could get access to, to weights and stuff like that. So we kind of started from scratch and in order to reassess where everybody's at, we, ha we had a, a West camp to see, hey, where are the Western athletes at, um, an East camp. And because at the time we had a lot of internationals, we, uh, there was an another camp held in France. 
Um, and it was kind of like a trials, let's see where we're at. And then from those different camps, we just had our top 40 camp um, in Victoria about a month ago. And from that top 40, now the, the new staff will, will select the team that's going to go to the Pac-4 tournament, which is happening literally in a few weeks in, in uh, New Zealand, which is exciting. And then we have the whole summer to basically prepare for the, the main event in the fall. So um, the Pac-4 tournament will be exciting. And on the way to New Zealand, the girls are going to be playing um, Fiji, which we know, you know has a really strong sevens program and up-and-coming 15s. And then uh, we've got Italy coming here in late July and Wales going to Halifax in late August. And so we've got, we've got a pretty good you know, schedule. Uh, the girls are probably going to get seven international matches between now and, and their kickoff at that's the World good. Cup. So enough games to feel like, hey, yeah, well, let's get some good. momentum. Uh, you know, our head coach, Kevin Rouette, made it quite clear that if you were not selected for Pac-4, you're still in the mix. Like, you know, injuries happen. Oh, yeah. Maybe there's a change in mindset of how you want to attack. Maybe this player is a better combination to that player. Um, and so the girls that were not selected for the Pac-4 now have that hard task of staying fit and engaged. Uh, and potentially be an option for the World Cup. So I think we're going to select 32 for that event, and that will happen at the tail end of the summer. So lots of rugby between now and then to prove yourself as an athlete if you were not selected, but even if you were selected for the Pac-4 to, to stay on the top of your game, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so then circling back to a bit of different coaching, but here you did your, you said you did the PhD blood doping, creating mm -hmm. that kind of like mm -hmm. more sciencey stuff. But now you're director of the Masters of High Performance Coaching and Technical Leadership Program here in UBC. So That's you right. are, you just mentioned earlier about a coach educator. So you're now coaching coaches mm -hmm. and they are all different coaches like hockey basketball all 100%. come to ubc yeah to yeah do that masters talk to me how did you get into that kind of uh, yeah role? for sure so as an instructor here in the school of kin uh when i got hired we had to coach seven courses in a year one of which was uh performance planning at the grad level um and, and that wasn't like my graduate training was not in that area but because of my applied experiences as an athlete and as a coach i felt like i had the it was within my wheelhouse to coach to, to, to teach sorry and then about 10 years ago david hill from csi pacific came up to me and said hey i have this idea like he's involved with, with as a coach educator in the advanced coaching diploma he's like what if ubc created a certificate in coaching and then we eventually laddered it into a master's and uh, I was about maybe three years into my career here at UBC, pretty green. Like, again, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. And so we got the certificate approved, which is four courses. And then we eventually laddered it into a master's program. So a master's program is three years in length, 30 credits. Uh, and we use the multi-sport model. So basically coaches from all over the place. And we probably have about over 25 um, sports represented within our program and we're about eight years into the, the the this program so we've had eight cohorts basically go through the full masters um and so yeah so this performance planning which i still teach within the certificate um was a great gateway into now i'm, I'm not only the the director of the program but also one of the instructors in the capstone project uh, that they have to do before as as they graduate uh, which is a very hands-on course, which is really fun to supervise. Um, so yeah, a little bit of a kind of, you know, sidestep uh, into what I, I wasn't trained to, to educate this way, but through my World Rugby Educator and Facilitator workshops mm. and stuff like that, I was able to kind of marry both of my skill sets. So yeah, so now 
as a director and, and the instructor in, in, in this program, um, the, the new plan is to coach coaches and, and have these coaches go out into the, the sports system and make an impact. And not only like, hey, let's get more gold medals at the Olympics. Sure, that's definitely a, an effect that we want to have. But let's just make sports safe. Let's make sure that, you know, well-being and psychological safety is at the forefront um, of everything that we do as a coach. And ultimately, I think, you know, Dave's passion and, and, and my, my mission is to really legitimize coaching as a profession here in Canada. So we don't really have that. Um, and maybe this is a small piece of the puzzle and we'll get there in a few years. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And it's something that I'm just finding really interesting recently in the last, say, two years or so, but the term psychological safety. So mm -hmm. I was chatting and you just kind of went into it a little bit there, but I was chatting to a guy on Saturday, young guy, like, I don't know, 22 or three or whatever. I was chatting to him and he was, we were just chatting about different coaches, teams, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I've coached as well as play, love it. And he was saying about a coach he had back home, he was quite high performance. Yep. And he's like, this guy's a great coach, whatever. But you know, one day we were playing this game where it's like you kick it into the backfield, you get one point, you score a try, you get three points. I tried this spiral kick into the corner because I saw a flanker there and I knew I had him, whatever. And it yep. just went off the side of my foot. And I heard the coach go, oh, Jesus. And then, and he says, then I thought to myself, well, that's the last time I'm ever trying to do right. that. Yeah, 100%. And then he was saying his coach now is just so great in because right. he gives him free reign to do anything. If he makes a mistake, he yep. laughs. And just those simple thing, he's saying this guy is such a great coach. And mm -hmm. that other one, he said he's a good coach, but that one thing yeah. tightened him up. And he's like, he said, I'll never try it again. So I know. What, what is like psychological safety? It's, I suppose, a big thing, but how do yeah. you work with coaches in that yeah i mean we have some formal education that would uh help coaches figure that out for themselves right but i just back to what you said like for me psychological safety is to have that freedom right to to try different uh things in a practice and and they would be different in a game for example right stakes are higher mm. but also just always show that support for the athlete and and some coaches will say it's okay if you mess up like failures is how we learn but then when the athlete fails the coach gets really upset about it yeah. and you can't do that right like mm. so just labeling it like sometimes we'll say this is an exploratory practice so i am like try things put yourself out of that comfort zone and once you start becoming a bit more proficient in a skill then we can apply those more in kind of like a high performance event um but i think for the coaches a lot of it like i was coached a certain way by certain coaches and I, if I coach that way now, I'd get fired. Mm. Like some of the things that I've been like told as yeah. an athlete, um, you can't even like dare think those things anymore. Um, and I think you can still push athletes to outside of their comfort zone in a high performance environment, but it's still like in a healthy way, right? And then a lot of that also goes to like knowing your athlete and knowing the context and having that rapport and that trust with the athlete. And sometimes as coaches, you're gonna make mistakes. And if I was that coach and I mean, I'm sure I've sworn at the sideline and said something, um, but apologize and take accountability for that, you know, in, in, in the team setting is also important. Nobody's perfect. For the most part, I give people credit, like they're intentionally good and they're trying their best, right? Mm. And, but when pressure's on, you, you might kind of, you know, things escalate and it's, it's not the best scenario. But um, we do have like coach like courses in our program or particular modules in our program to just educate the the coach on that. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is that self-awareness and, and words matter 
and actions also matter a lot. Um, but I, I think now it's tough for coaches to maybe be themselves because they want to express themselves in certain ways and it might not be the right landscape or culture. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's still a lot for people that are learning myself as a coach as well. Like, um, you know, EDI is a huge thing right now. So What's equity, that? diversion and inclusion, right? So, you know, we've, we've been, you know, coached a certain way from a particular lens. And if we want to make our sport welcoming, right, we have to raise that awareness. And, and I think a lot of times if you just are honest with somebody and say, Hey, like I may, I'm going to make mistakes. And uh, my intention is always good. Um, just accept that this is what I'm trying to do. And I'm learning and you're learning. And if everybody's cool with that, let's move forward, right? Um, for example, I had, I had an athlete um, that identifies as a they, right? And, and to me, I called her she a few times. And I said, listen, I'm really trying here. I apologize. And she was totally cool. She's like, I could see you're trying. Like, it's yeah. like, you know, you, my wheels are turning as I'm trying to run use around these the field words. and see all these different people and do all these different yeah, things. Yeah. And like, and sometimes I'm like, Hey, like, like tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey, you just said this instead of that. Like, as long as it's the right timing, like mm. I'm all in, like, I want to learn more about that. I, I want to make everybody welcomed, um, and have this, this grounds, because if we start excluding athletes based on, uh, how they identify what they look like, it, you know, rugby, as you know, is a diverse sport. Like yeah. we need all types of body shapes and ways of thinking and skill sets. And so if we just open those doors, I think we'll, we'll really kind of move forward. Yeah, for right? sure. But sensitive topics, um, sometimes I feel uncomfortable talking about those because I don't know how am I using the wrong words? Yeah. Am I going to insult you? Um, maybe as a woman of color, I can get away with saying certain things, but that doesn't give me a, a green card to, to be, um, to be wrong. Right. Mm. Uh, but I think everybody has that, um, responsibility to get a little bit more educated and, and be upfront and say, Hey, I'm just trying here. And if I mess up, you, you tell me. Yeah. Right. Do you know I what I mean? Like 100%. it's, it's difficult at, at, at times. Um, so yeah, still learning in that domain and, and trying to get more educated and reading up on it. Um, because we like, we've been coached a certain way, which I think is no longer acceptable yeah. and, and we need to move forward. Yeah. I think it's interesting in that the way you say they're like off the bat to say, Hey, I'm learning about all this. Yep. We all are in the whole world. Like exactly. everyone, but it's like, Hey, I'm learning. I'm going to make mistakes. Yep. And then for you as a person, a, a player or a person who takes, who isn't happy with something that it could also be background, you mm -hmm. know, like yep. rugby in Ireland used to be very elitist and mm -hmm. then it started bringing in people from other backgrounds and that yep. can be difficult too. You 100%. know, if, if you're from different backgrounds and, so a coach says something that you know doesn't yep. quite sit with you but it's the onus on you to chat to the coach and yep. tell them because they're never gonna know yeah you know 100%. what i mean like yeah and, and if you then get upset about something a coach says like i'm sure once again like i make mistakes all the time but it's when people say it then you can start the wheels can turn you can yeah be like, okay it's really it I starts start with awareness that. right and yeah. and sometimes i need that person to make me aware of it because again if i don't know it i i won't know it yeah exactly so I, I think it's all, like we're really in this interesting time in sport, right? Where I think coaches need to do better, honestly. Mm. And, and, you know, you're working with youth and then that bar needs to be raised to a certain, a much higher level and so forth. And so I think this program is, is educating the coach a little bit um, for sure. And just raising that awareness and, and giving them the tools to, hey, this is where you can go and, and uh, become better in this particular area. Mm. But I think, I think every, it's, 
it's you know people are sometimes very like oh i don't want to mess up i don't want to call you something wrong and they and then get you know, For, freeze yeah like exactly. a player would freeze yeah. on a field exactly a coach would freeze yeah uh, yeah yeah and I, i like when i try not to call them guys you know hey guys we actually had a team one time that was like hey we actually want you to call us guys and just yeah. knowing that i was like oh really i'm really trying not to call you guys yeah. so i'm like hey everyone hey folks all right athletes come <laughs> yeah. over here like and you look, what are you these other weird. words it's right? like who is like yeah. it's like you and look like, like weird just call us guys it's so unnatural when you're saying folks or team <laughs> and i'm like okay like if this is cool yeah. with you guys that's fine yeah. and uh but then somebody might be watching me calling them guys and it's out of context and be like hey stop calling them guys this is a female team yeah and uh and then it's a side conversation like they actually want me to call them guys like yeah so what do you want me to do right like um so yeah i think a lot of it is within the context and and uh just don't be quick to judge and ask questions first and, and get yeah. a bit more information right for sure yeah. it's interesting yeah i found it similar because i would always say like lads or boys sure i would yeah. never say hey men come in here sure but then when i was i just always call say girls yeah and then i don't know you hear women as well and i haven't had this conversation but yeah. maybe it's something i could but then they call each other girls and then i'm like okay girls but you know because I, i would never i was just thinking myself i was like i would never when i coach men be like or boys be yeah. like even if and you're some 25 people will say okay so when you call you have a group of men and you call them boys yeah that's it's fine but if you have a group of women you call them girls some people will say oh you're like uh diminishing them yeah. to like little girls yeah and you're like if i call you women that's weird yeah. i just keep it neutral i'm like folks team everyone until you get the until, thumbs up yeah until they of. say hey it's weird that you're calling us that just you know yeah. i say athletes a lot like to me that's and they they like that word yeah. they're like i remember the first time a coach used it they're like all right i need five athletes at this cone and i was like they just called us athletes like yeah. i felt good about it yeah. and so i try to use that word a lot um But yeah, it's it's words that matter, and 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 um, just even having that conversation at the beginning is really important, yeah. and acknowledging um, that at the beginning of, of anything, and then then it's you know things pick up on momentum, yeah. and you're good to go. And on the yeah. um, the self awareness you mentioned with coaches earlier, just on a field, it's interesting in that you can have so much impact as well on a player by just tiny little things, like if like say a player makes a mistake and mm -hmm. you smile and just it's not all about what you how you explain a drill how you i don't know have reviews that are yeah. organized like that when you say that self-awareness like that you can yeah have just so much impact yeah. on players well they say like 70 of communication is non-verbal mm. right so you know if I'm, i'm right now i'm crossing my arms if i'm crossing my arms on the sideline and looking at you like mm. that you're probably thinking oh i might not, might not be playing that great she's got yeah. her arms crossed she's closed off yeah right so you're right i think that self-awareness and we do some things in our program like a 360 evaluation where we ask the coaches to go get evaluated which is tough right like mm. to receive feedback on who you are as a person ultimately mm. um two athletes you know somebody you work with at the same level like a peer and somebody that can evaluate you above you so like your boss or something and get that different perspective is a huge eye-opening experience daunting at first to mm -hmm. embark on um and people are like oh we, like you, your body posture or your body like um 
language is never good or and you're like oh my god or you you don't even notice it when you're watching yourself but when somebody mentions it then it's like now now i know what you mean okay i'll try not to cross my arms but this is my comfortable you know posture um so just changing that um yeah the words that you use the tone that you use them in all those like little cues that that tell you about it it's interesting it's cool because i love it because you can have so much more impact being aware of those different things 100 percent. funny one what not happened to me but last summer I was coaching the U17 girls or something, U18, I think. And Aaron Tackle was there as well as like the coach educator mm-hmm. kind of overlooking. And he yeah. gave them a challenge and I'd find out what the challenge was. And I found out pretty quick it was to make me smile. Okay. And I like, well, you know, when I'm coaching, I just, I think I get too into it and yeah. I'm like looking at it and I'm just very like analytical yeah. and whatever, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. he was like, you know, it's like you're not, you're not smiling. You're not I'm smiling. like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm happy. I'm loving it. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. but I just be but so into it, and that's, that's why. Way, so yeah. it's just me being more aware of that. That like, yeah. by having that demeanor, um, yeah. that would enable them to be a bit more comfortable maybe you know exactly. and it's something that i'm just more aware of now yeah you know to I, I i get pretty fired up on the sidelines and i know it's not helpful um and you're always like yelling at the winger because they're the only ones that can hear you yeah so when i coach now um at international level it's it's easier because you're not on field uh, but i i stand by the rugby post and I, I and I try not to. You guys, I see you and Dean stand far away, side, and, and you're yeah. mic'd up to Carolyn, yeah. which is great, and she can control the subs and things like that. But I found it hard to not swear and get excited about the rugby, bad or good. And so I, I'm like, I'm gonna put myself in a timeout, and I'm gonna mm. go watch the game from the sidelines. Um, but if I had enough self-control or self-regulation, I I could probably move myself back. Right. I also didn't like hearing the conversations that the athletes were having amongst each other, like the subs that distracted me a lot. And mm. I just was like, I need to remove myself. So I think that first step of self-awareness is massive. Yeah. So just opening your own eyes to that is, is huge. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Like I would have thought that I was calm, collected, whatever, but it was first game of the season last year. I was on the sideline. I was yeah. getting amped, like jumping up and down, running up and down. And, yeah. then, and it was then that we kind of, uh, some of the players said it, they're like, oh, you know, you were too whatever, yeah. all of the coaches. Yeah. And so we then had Removed a chat yourself. and we were like, mm-hmm. how can we be better? So right. then we came to that strategy of, of you know, somebody, yourselves. and it's yeah. way better. It's so 100%. much better as a coach standing back and just getting a couple of messages on because it forces you to have clear messages Mm -hmm. versus shouting the first thing that comes to your head right yeah 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 (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean and we've all seen that that coach that just losing it on the sideline it's not helpful to anybody right you know the athletes on field off the field and yourself included so but yeah that's funny yeah Yeah. um thanks for your time a couple of quick ones yeah yeah what advice would you give say 17 18 year old girl that wants to play with Canada that has those aspirations oh that's a great question I mean I think if you're if you're in that university setting you really use that setting to your advantage because these those are going to be the next four or five crucial years in your development uh where you're going to be diving headfirst into what you need to become a better rugby player so uh, good coaching, SNC, um, you know, sports psych support if, if, if you want it or if you need it, um, nutrition, all that good stuff. So just soak it in. Um, and um, I would say that's the, that's the, the, the big one there. Um, and that it takes time. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be there tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? And just be like, listen, like when you're 17, and, and this is where I think I'm, um, 
I think we need that U23 team back. I don't know, back in the day, we used to have a U23 program. And it was a great stepping stone between your U20 and your senior rugby. Yeah. The average age on our, on our senior rugby team right now is about 28 or 29. So when you're 17 and you want to be somewhat competitive versus a 28, 29 yeah. year old, like you've got a long road ahead of you, right? So I, I, would, I want that U23 program to come back. And as you know, you know Rugby Canada is going, went through a huge review process and now there's committees being formed to, hey, what, what does our new strategic plan look like and how can we just basically get better at rugby here in Canada? So if we can bring back that U23 program, it's, it's awesome because you play U18, that's going to give you a little taste of high performance. Yeah. And you might be like, oh man, this is what I want. I this want. is what I need. And that's two test matches a year max. Mm. U20, okay, a little bit more of a tournament style, gives you a bit more of that exposure, a bit more support throughout the year with some bigger benchmarks to hit. But I honestly think that U23 program was really important to get you to the senior team because so much happens in those seven years of maturation physicality not just like physical maturation but emotional and also knowing the game like you know rugby is a late specialization sport and so telling Mm. that 17 year old to just be patient and know that hey if if you want to be in this sport you will be for another 15 years right so what is the rush you don't need to be that person tomorrow just spend the time putting in the hard hours and a lot of that happens away from from people watching you, right? So mm. going in the gym, doing that hard work, the warm-ups, you know, that mental preparation, doing everything else in your life. So when you step on the rugby field, all you can think about is rugby and not have those distractions. I think that would be my my kind of advice to any up and coming rugby player. Yeah. Is no. that it takes time to be good. I think I was at my peak at around twenty nine. Right? Yeah. No, it's brilliant. So, it's so true. And I remember when I was eight that age you wa- you then think you're done as well. If you if you right. have a, a mishap at 19, 20, yep. 21, you're like, well, that's it. Chance is gone. But like early days, yeah. early days, if you ACL injury, you know, like which is very common nowadays in your early 20s, you rehab that well, you'll be bouncing no back problem. stronger than you were before. Right. And and honestly, and, and it's obviously position specific. But if you're, you know, if you're fit and um, you're motivated to like do that, the hard work mm. <laughs> uh you can stay in the game for a really long time for sure 100 percent. and and maybe not like rugby canada but you can go play club if you want um and keep being competitive in that way because honestly there's i've played a lot of sports throughout my life and there's nothing like rugby like the friendships the women that play the sport are kick-ass women like smart independent uh, ultra competitive no bullshit no drama for the most part right mm. and if there was drama i just cut those people out i'm just like i'm not a drama person like i don't have time for this you're just you do you i'll do me mm. and so you don't you won't find that later on in life so hold on to it for as long as you can uh, knowing that yeah you're gonna have to put in the hard work to stay in it as well yeah brilliant yeah. and yeah. most challenging period in your career player Player-wise, oh, that's a good one. Mm. I think it was when I was playing sevens and fifteens. From a load monitoring perspective, it was a lot, and I was probably overtrained at some points. And I think nowadays we do a lot better at gauging that. You know, athletes are wearing GPS monitors. Coaches are maybe conversing between each other if an athlete's playing on more than one team. Mm. Uh, but at the time, I was like, I think I'm burnt out. And it wasn't maybe just all rugby burnout, but just other aspects of my life where, okay, I'm a full-time professional and I'm, I'm trying to train twice a day and, and keep like keep that going for a while. Um, 
I would say that that one, yeah, when I was doing sevens and fifteens, also from a financial perspective too, right? Having to pay for both programs was stressful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And did that um, did that weigh, weigh on you as a player? Like I've heard the English women the when they went full time pro that mm-hmm. that was one of the things. It's that you don't have to the money isn't wasn't huge, but they didn't have to worry about that yeah. so that they could just focus on being a rugby player and that then and it also yeah, they could the have mental time stress recover. of it, right? Exactly. Yeah, the men's the mental stress is huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I some so I'm not a little longer an athlete, but sometimes like um so we moved to uh closer to my work, so I live on campus. But living close to a grocery store has just made life easier for me because I don't have to like prepare a list of groceries and yeah. go to the grocery store once a week. I know if I forget something, I can just pop in and out. And just that simple thing has like opened up other brain space for me where I'm no longer stressed out about food and groceries and making dinner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah. a silly little example, but I now have, you know, headspace for other mm-hmm. things. And so, yeah, not having to pay for your sport, I think just allows you to focus a little bit more on, on the craft of rugby itself. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that athletes have that privilege now. Um, and that they can just go and execute and, and do their thing and not have to worry about, hey, am I going to make ends meet, right? Yeah. Or, or you're living in a basement apartment and taking the bus and, you know, on, on uh, looking at your grocery bill thinking, man, I'm eating oatmeal and rice yeah, instead yeah, of like yeah. a nice juicy steak or chicken or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's nice that they don't have those worries. Um, but And freeing up that mental space is huge. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting to say that about the grocery store, but as a player as well, setting up your life to allow you to just be the most efficient player you can be, like like meal preps and obvious one, but but those kind of things, you know, really does help you as well. They don't just stress, but like make your dinner every day and just and and like looking back, like I remember, so when my parents moved to the to the America, and we my brothers and I were left in Canada to finish up our undergrad. I remember thinking, oh man, like now I got to do groceries. I got to wash my clothes. I've got to like sort myself out. Like that effort was exhausting. And now I would like give a thought, like a million dollars to go back to those days because those were simple days. There was no stress. But at the time I felt stressful, stressed about it. Now with a kid and a husband and a white house and like all these responsibilities, I'm like, oh man, I had it so good. Like just to think back and be like, oh, it was so great to be like that young kind of motivated person that, yeah, I get it. It's school is stressful. I get it. But it's actually just you that you got to worry about and just live it up. Like some of the alumni, I'm like, guys, stay in this as long as you can. Like Mm -hmm. university days are great. Live those years to like the best of your abilities. Go out, party, have a good time. Don't fail out, you know, Uh, but live those moments because, you know, I mean, I wouldn't give up what I have now, but um, it is easy days and it's it's fun. Yeah, it I should do. be fun. And ultimately, like it's I, I like to put things into context, like it's you're worrying about a game. I mean, rugby is a game, right? Like you're just trying to get a ball across a lot more <laughs> yeah, often than the other yeah. team. Right. So sometimes putting things into perspective and sometimes, you know, the world puts things into perspective for you. But just stepping outside and be like, hey, I'm. I'm pretty lucky to just be here and have a good time and, and get to work on this craft. Yeah, right? it's no, fun. 100%. Uh, yeah. Last one, if you could relive one day in your career as a player, what would yeah. it be? To relive it, kind yeah. of? Yeah. Ooh, good one. It would probably be when we f- when we beat the U.S. in Saranac Lake back in 1999. It was so fun. I didn't know what it meant. 
at the time but looking back like the the faces of the senior athletes and that that have been wanting to beat the u.s for 10 years and we finally did with seven new caps on the field so you could see the excitement that we were turning a corner as as a program was really fun so and it was a great match i didn't i didn't know what i was doing half the time <laughs> but i was just having a good time fun. like not knowing was fun right like just give me the ball i'll run and then i'll i'll hit the ground when i get stopped and that was basically it so it was simple days but yeah, I remember looking at, like when we won, the girls just exploded. And I was like, oh, like we don't do this very often. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we all so excited? Um, so I would say that's the day that if I could relive that. And I think I was like 21 at the time or something. That was a great fun day. Brilliant. Well, yeah. thanks, Mel, for your time, Marie. Yeah, brilliant no worries, chatting. Brian. This was fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed this pod and you mustn't have thought it was too bad if you're still here, would you please do me a big favor and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts? Just let me know what you like about the pod, would really appreciate it, and it helps other people find it. I loved how Maria said that she never worried about the opposition when she was playing. Definitely a positive of not having the tape, technology, social media, all that crack. When I'm working with teams on mental performance, this kind of thing comes up quite a bit. People have a tendency to put too much focus and emphasis on the opposition and who they're playing against and then in turn you get in your head and all of a sudden you're spooked. I like Pete Carroll the NFL winning coach with the Seahawks and in his book he said the focus is always us it's always about us getting ready to play it's not about the other team we'll beat ourselves before they ever beat us that's always our approach. And I think that that's a good mindset or outlook to have. But don't get me wrong, you don't not look at any opposition tape at all, obviously. And Marie obviously didn't have the luxury of the tape. But what I feel works well, when I play, I'm the lineout leader. So what I'll do is watch all the opposition lineouts from the last two games, three games. And I'll see what's the first lineout they do each game. This will usually be their favorite, most comfortable ball, and they'll probably go to it again first lineup when they play us. Then I'll look for triggers. I'll analyze the caller's actions as they're coming into the lineup and see what he's doing and just get an overall feel for what they like to do. Then I'll put together a quick plan on how we get one step ahead when we play them. And I try to make this as simple as possible. Like I'm not telling the other lads like, oh, they do this, this, this. And then if this happens, then you, you go here and then we go there. And then all of a sudden you're just all over the place and you do nothing. But as well, I love this, the line out. It's like a game within a game for me. And I know front rowers have the same with scrums. But yeah, then in training, the focus is still on our line because we got to win our ball. So it could be like... 85-90% of our ball, 10-15% what we're going to do on their ball. I'm talking about them. It's different for every position, but what I think is good would be that say whatever your main thing is, to get an insight into what the opposition do in relation to that. So then you can get confidence going into the game because you know what they're most likely going to do. And you know how you're going to have success against that. So say if you're a 10 and they have a really hard umbrella hammer defense, you want to be aware of that. Like you don't want to be going in blind and then all of a sudden 
nothing's working because they're shutting you down. Like you want to have an awareness of what you're going to be coming up against, but you don't want to be analyzing every single last thing about the opposition to the nth degree because that all takes a lot of time. Like if you then start looking at their back rowers and analyzing the game of each of the back rowers and seeing how they come off lineouts, come off scrums and what their tendencies are and then you look at the opposition 9 the opposition 10 12 and all of a sudden geez you'd be overwhelmed and there's yeah a million things that you could look at but if you just have an overall idea of what you're going to be coming up against it kind of takes away that unknown maybe you might have that unknown once again for maria it was a big help that unknown because it was kind of like ignorance is bliss and she just went out and played which was awesome but yeah if you have the tape maybe find one or two little things that you can get confidence from and then exploit and now when I'm wearing a different hat when I'm coaching personally I look at the opposition in huge detail like looking at everything they're doing analyzing them understanding them making notes to see what we can do to break them down and how we can have success against them but then when it comes to implementing a strategy with the players I try to just maybe have one thing that we can look at or slightly tweak in what we're doing for the opposition and that forces me to kind of look through all those notes and go what's the the one thing that will give us the most success or hopefully give us the most success because once again you don't want to be overwhelming players with the opposition and I've heard this with UFC fighters as well who've lost and other people and they say yeah I looked at the opposition too much I was focused on his takedown too much and I didn't you know lean into my strike and all of a sudden you're just constantly looking to defend a takedown versus be you and yeah it's just it's it's in every sport but yeah like Pete Carroll said it's all about us and I'm very lucky with the team I'm with now they're ballers so every game it's always just about us being us us leaning into what we do and yeah just doing what we do best if you're an ambitious player and want to be the strongest that you can be mentally, I do an extra podcast for just that. And I'll also answer any questions you have on that or talk about different topics or things you'd like me to. And you can sign up on patreon.com forward slash rugby. The link is in the show notes and it's less than the price of two beers a month. And I think that I do it myself, but investing in yourself is a great idea if you want to get better at something or get to your next level please follow me on instagram at offfieldrugby for clips from the pod and content on how you can realize your potential as a player thanks emil for clicking in today really appreciate it have a good one cheers